Well, we have been. Um, we've done two two different things recently. So when we went through the book of Esther, our evening services were dedicated to just kind of continuing to go through the book of Esther. We slowed down a little bit through the book of Revelation, and we've been using our Sunday evening time somewhat to reflect on that which we had learned or what the application was from that sermon. But I want to do things a little differently tonight because I was looking at the calendar and I have three more Sundays with you all before I'm gone for a little bit for vacation, for a little family vacation. And three Sundays is really hard to think of a book of the Bible that we can go through in three Sundays. And so I thought, well, we could, you know, do the three Sundays and then just have that long break and then come back to a book. But who wants to do that? That sounds miserable. So what are, where are we going next? I want to look at the book of Genesis. And this evening I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. But before we really get moving in that direction, let me ask, what is the book of Genesis? It's one of those books that we're all familiar, right? I mean, this is the first book of the Bible. Um, people could probably tell you John 3.16 and Genesis. What is the purpose of the book of Genesis? Does anyone want to try to summarize that for us? Beginning of time. Very good answer, Miss Jeannie. Yeah, so from the, from the Greek, uh, genosis, or beginning. So genesis literally means the beginning. What's the purpose? Why is it written? So that we might know. Very good answer. It answers questions for us. It gives us things to know. You know what I think the church has failed at? And I mean in a general sense in the past 30, 40, 50 years. I think we've gotten very good at focusing on the finer details. And I myself am guilty of this. I would much rather, you've heard me say, especially in our Wednesday night study, I would much rather spend all of my time on one verse, breaking it down and pulling everything we could possibly pull out of that one verse. Have we done that and forgotten what the main point is? Have we communicated what the bigger picture is? What the broad strokes are? Let me tell you about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is written to communicate to man God's promises and blessings. That's it. Write that down so you don't forget. If someone asks you what Genesis is about, next time you can say, it is about God telling His creation what His promises are and what His blessings are. But let's zoom out a little bit further. We believe that Genesis was most likely written by Moses. Where is Moses mentioned in the book of Genesis? He's not, right? He's not mentioned until the book of Exodus. So we have to understand a little bit about Bible history to really be able to pull everything we could possibly pull out of Genesis. Moses was writing for the Israelites after they had escaped from Egypt. 
in the middle of the exile, or not exile, but in the middle of, of their exodus. That's really the climax of the whole story. So to understand Genesis then, I think a good way for us to think of it is really to think of the whole first five books of the Bible as one unit. And the history affirms that. It's called the, what's it called? Pentateuch. Pentateuch, very good. Or the first Penta five, two, first book of the law. So first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I said already the climax of all of this is in the Exodus. The Israelites leaving Egypt, God establishing the Mosaic Covenants with them on Mount Sinai and making them a nation. That's really where the story begins. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just retell and add detail to all of those different points. Genesis, then, is the prologue. Right? This is the before the story begins. It's the prologue. How did we get here? It establishes these main points. And one of the strange things that I find as I look through Genesis is there's so many lies. It's just over and over again. People lying or people being lied to. I mean, it starts out in Genesis 3. That's what I want to look at tonight. The very first lie, Satan's lie to Eve. But then it goes on from that and it continues. Abraham lies to save his tail, not once but twice. Calls his wife his sister. Uh, then Israel does the exact same thing. Um, then Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph. It's just one lie after the next. And we see, what, how would that be important, considering Genesis as the prologue to this big story of the nation of Israel being established? Remember I said Genesis is the story that God has both created and that he has given promises and blessings to his people. Why don't we see those blessings? Why can't we hold on to those promises? It all comes back to a lie. So let us look then at Genesis chapter 3. I want to look at the first lie this evening and just giving you a little bit of a foretaste. We'll be looking at more lies in Genesis. I do need your help, though. Um, let me plant this seed real fast just before we really get started. I do not know what to call this three-week sermon series. I don't really want to call it Lies in Genesis because that's going to be posted online somewhere, and someone's just going to see a graphic that says Lies in Genesis, and they're going to say that Denver Street Baptist Church has jumped off the rails. Um, because now I'm calling the Bible a lie. And I, so that's not what I'm trying to say. I want to look at the lies that are in Genesis as a product of narrative, not as a product of infallibility. Anyways, so if you can think of what, what to call this series, or we'll just call it an uncomfortable series. I don't know. But if you can think of something, I, I would be happy to entertain those suggestions. Now let us get into the text. The very first lie, Genesis chapter 3, I want to look at verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. First thing that we're introduced to is, of course, The liar, the deceiver, the tempter. In chapter 3, verse 1, we begin with now the serpent. The serpent is the one who is identified in Revelation 12, 9 as Satan himself. Revelation 12, 9 says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I think what's startling about Genesis chapter 3 is we follow these creation narratives and immediately we see the picture of a part of creation, a subordinate part of creation, addressing a superior part of creation. What do I mean by that? Satan is a subordinate part of creation in relation to humanity. The angels are not given the glory of being called the image bearers of God. The angels, in fact, are made lower than humans, although not in power for this current time. You can see Hebrews chapter 2 if you want to know more about that. But here's the serpent. Man in Genesis 2 had been told to take dominion over creation, to rule over it as God's... um, as kind of an extension of God's authority. God had given them that authority. And here's the serpent now speaking to Eve. And before she even realizes it, before she even comprehends what is going on, she's wrapped up in this conversation. There's a very similar scene in the Gospels, isn't there? Jesus, as the first time, and it's Matthew chapter 16, the first time that Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to die, that he still has to go into Jerusalem, that he has to be persecuted by the scribes and the Pharisees, and that he's going to die. Peter says, sounds great, Lord. You go do what you got to do. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter says, far from it be, Lord, that you should die. And what is Jesus' response? That's right. Get behind me, Satan. This is the same temptation, the same subordinate speaking to a superior. Peter, Jesus addresses Peter in the same way because he wanted all of the means, all the promise that God had given him, but ultimately he wasn't interested in Jesus' method, which meant obedience to the Father, even obedience to the point of the cross. So we meet Satan, the serpent, and it says that he was crafty. Now the ESV says crafty. I believe the King James says shrewd. Is that right? What? Subtle. Subtle. Which, does anyone have a translation that says shrewd? 
I think shrewd would probably be the best translation right here. Because it represents um, not, not just the ability to be crafty, not just the ability to be subtle, but also the ability to watch out for harm or to watch out for traps or ensnarements. In Hebrew, the word used here is actually a pun. You may not realize it because it doesn't come through in English at all. But we see in verse 25 this comparison that the man and the wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The word shrewd here in Hebrew is erum. The word for naked is erum in. It's the same sound right next to each other. This craftiness that communicates this wordplay is that Adam and Eve were oblivious to the evil and the dangers that lay before them. They were oblivious that there would be those that would come to deceive them. John 8.44 tells us about this crafty serpent that he is of the devil, that his will is, to do the father, is not to do the Father's desires, that he is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the master of lies. This is what he does. It's his M.O. It's not only his motive, but he's very good at it. He tells the best lies. And as a former um, pathological liar to a bunch of humans, I'll tell you the trick to a good lie is you put it as close to the truth as you possibly can. Lies are best when they sound like the truth. When it's something that we want to believe. Satan, you see, is not really interested in what people do. Satan's actually not a moral enemy. He's not an adversary for the purposes that he wants people to fall and do evil and wicked things. You know what Satan's interested in? He's interested in what people think. Because if we can begin to think like Satan thinks, we'll do all sorts of things. Satan would rather we think the wrong thing than do the wrong thing. If we believe the wrong thing, we'll keep on doing the wrong thing over and over and over again with no guilt. If we simply do the wrong things, we might feel guilty and repent, and that is to no advantage for Satan. He's interested in the way that we think. We see that in verse 1 as he asks a simple question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This question is craftily worded. It's subtle in its implications. It's shrewd in laying out the trap that the people have to face. The question that was raised was not easy to answer. First of all, it was built on presuppositions. Second of all, its purpose was hidden and concealed. The reason Satan was asking this question was so that Eve would begin to doubt the goodness of God. This is the very first lie. He says, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat anything from the tree in the garden, any, from any tree in the garden? He's getting Eve to begin to doubt, is God actually good? Why has he put me here? What am I here to do? What is God's purposes? He's getting her to doubt God's goodness. We're looking at her response in verse 2 to 3. Let's make note of a few things. You shall not eat of the tree of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? No. Yeah, we look at it and it's very close, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 16, we find God's original commandment. If you put those side by side, there's three changes that Eve makes. The first one is God begins by saying, you may surely eat or you may fully eat or you may completely eat. Eve introduces her statement by saying, you shall not eat. Already the first thing that she has done is that she has minimized the graciousness of God. You see, Satan's real plan to get Eve to question the goodness of God is is coming through and it's, it's beginning to play out because she has now already in her response minimized God's goodness. She says, we may eat when God, in fact, said we may freely eat. Second, she exaggerates. God says in chapter 2, verse 16, You may freely eat every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Eve says, of the tree in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it. Did God say anything about touching it? She exaggerates what God had commanded her. And third... Similar to how she minimized God's grace, she also trivialized the consequence of disobeying God. Notice that God says, the reason you shall not eat of it is for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve says, lest you die. Eh, might die. She trivializes the consequences. As these doubts begin to build, we've already seen Satan's first motivation to get Eve to question the goodness of God. But now this temptation is here and Satan cannot help but to jump onto it with a second lie, a second deception. In verse 4, it's not just about goodness, but now he rejects the word of God altogether. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He completely rejects not only what Eve said, but here's an interesting note. A real good liar. Satan's words are closer to what God actually said than what Eve paraphrased. And he rejects it altogether. You shall not surely die. He rejects God's word. And in rejecting it, Now he's going to get Eve not just to question the goodness of God, but also his truthfulness. 
How can I get... How can we really get people stumbling? It's by questioning the truthfulness of what God has given us in His revealed Word. We have in today's society many versions of subtle questioning of God's truth. The first one would be, and by the way, this particular list is adapted from Adrian Rogers. Because I would try to avoid using such words um, because I don't like using big words. But Adrian Rogers uses these words. And if the Prince of Preachers himself can, can use these words, I can too. The first one is relativism. Relativism is a school of thought that teaches that there is no fixed truth, that everything is subject to what it is relative to. And the, the big idea with relativism is Basically, everything starts out with a thesis or a claim, and every thesis has an antithesis or an opposite claim, and that if you synthesize, synthesis, those two things together, you get a new, a new idea to run with. But the problem is with relativism is if there's no absolute truth and everything's relative to one another, you synthesize, and then you get another antithesis, or, and then you have to synthesize them again. It's total nonsense. But it shows up all over. Second one would be subjectivism. This one's becoming more popular, especially with younger audiences who, rather than saying this is what we ought to do or this is what needs to be done, they want to say, I feel like this would be a good decision. Um, Seems like the younger and younger people, they keep wanting to say, I feel and that's their source of authority. You know, my feelings have brought this forward into reality. It's subjective to myself. It's more about how I feel and my experiences than simply this is what the Word of God says. I've even heard sermons where uh, preachers, or I would say quote-unquote preachers, say, in my opinion, this means this. I think we need less of that. We need more simple, this is what the Bible says. The third one to consider would be rationalism, which is, I think, pretty self-evident. That's just worshiping our own logic. What we believe uh, has to fall into things that are rational and can be comprehended and that have reason. That's a little bit trouble when you're talking about faith simply because it surpasses reason. That isn't to say that what we believe is contrary to reason. It's simply beyond it. God is not unreasonable, but we cannot by reason find God. Understanding spiritual truth requires spiritual understanding. And a fourth example of rejecting the truthfulness of God that we often see in the world today, and I'd say this one is probably the most prominent, is pragmatism. Pragmatism. What is pragmatism? Instead of asking, is it true, pragmatism asks, does it work? Pragmatism is more focused on the effects of something rather than its truthfulness. When we begin valuing results more than truth, I believe we've slipped so far off the path, it becomes difficult for us to even see truth anymore. I bring all of these up 
Because the church today and every Christian desperately needs to be guided by one truth. I think the world needs to be guided by one truth. I think we need to get back to realizing that truth isn't subjective, it's not relational, it's not changing, but that it is absolute. If something is true, it can be proven, it can be sought after, it can be tested, it can be verified, and it's not necessarily rational either because in issues of faith, it's still true even if it can't be verified because it's born into us. People want to question God and His truthfulness on the basis of what they feel God should do. How you feel is the wrong term. How you, your feelings are the wrong terms to meet with a God that transcends your world. Well, I've introduced two lies that Satan has um, attempted to pull over on Eve. The first one, he tried to get Eve to question God's goodness. Second, he tried to get Eve to question God's truthfulness. But I think he takes it one step further again in verse 5, now getting Eve to question God's righteousness. Picking up from the questions that were already in her mind, which are evident by her response and the three ways that she changed what God actually said, when she trivializes the very consequences that she says, lest you die rather than you shall surely die, Satan refutes and, and adds some strength to, to how he wants to dismiss the word of God altogether. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it in your eyes, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now he's added on to the issue of God's goodness, this issue of perhaps God is withholding this from you because he's trying to control you or he's trying to um, constrain you in some way. But it turns out that that's not the reason that God gives us his law. It turns out that the reason that God gives us his law is for our own benefit. Those of us that have experienced younger children and you tell them that they cannot do something. And fortunately, my children haven't done this, so I still have a, a bunch of strength, but I know the day is coming. You're so mean. Isn't that what kids say when they don't get what they want? You're so mean. The truth is, I think that's the way Christians are towards God whenever he tells them something in their law and they would rather live however they want because it feels more right to me. Or because not focusing on it allows me to be more attractional to people that don't believe God's truth to begin with. Here's the lies. God's goodness, His truthfulness, and now His righteousness. We want to talk about what's right and wrong and talk about the benefits that come from it. That it's good to be people that pursue God's truth because obedience is a blessing from God. In fact, obedience comes with natural blessings. Whenever you follow God's world, law, uh, things just they work out better. Living in contradiction to God's word causes issues. It causes a bunch of issues. Well, here, church doesn't want to talk about why it actually matters to be obedient to God. What's the real issue at hand? What's actually at stake? Is it the consequences that come in this world? For example, God tells us to have a clean diet. Do you know what the benefit of having a clean diet is? 
Your digestive system works. Your body works better. There's practical reasons for this. God told in his law that if somebody um, in the camp of Israel, if they needed to uh, defecate, they should leave the camp. They shouldn't do that around everyone else. It turns out dysentery is not great for a camp of people, especially when they're traveling as a nomadic people. So it makes sense that you should leave. There's hygienic laws. What's the real consequence? If you don't follow these laws, you get dysentery, your digestive system doesn't work, your body falls apart. No. The real issue is when you don't follow the, the laws of a righteous God and a loving God, it condemns you to hell. The issue is not dysentery. The issue is judgment for all of eternity. It seems like all we want to talk about is what's right in front of us. God's righteousness is absolute. There's people that say that they have a difficult time imagining an all-loving God being the same God that could send unrepentant sinners to hell. They say that's not how our justice system works. As a matter of fact, I think if the Supreme Court were to take up today God's judgment, they would deem eternal hell and damnation as unfair, um, unusual punishment. God's not man. His thoughts are not man's. God's God. He's far above us and He's completely righteous. Satan tries to deceive Eve. In fact, I think he's successful in this, saying that God's withholding something from him, when in reality, God's righteousness is not an issue of lest I die. It is an issue of you will surely die. People want to question God's judgment. I think they really miss what's going on here. This is so evident in today's world, it's unreal. I wish I could put it in, in more clear terms, but... Part of me is afraid I would offend somebody if I did that, and so maybe I'm being veiled to protect myself. But, oh, it's so prevalent in today's culture. Something called New Ageism or, or, or the, this infiltration of Eastern religions. Have you ever heard somebody talk about reincarnation? I've heard people in churches talk about reincarnation. That's messed up. You're not getting recycled. God created you. That's unchristian. It's because these world religions that are not based off of revelation, but rather are, dis- are, are discoverable religions or sought after religions, this is what makes them different from Christianity completely and totally. Christianity is a revealed religion where God has given us His revealed Word. He has done the work of showing Himself to us. But every other world religion, every other world religion is a discovered religion. Man went out and found God. And when you go and you find God, guess what God looks like? He looks like your feelings, your prejudices, everything that you are. And when our life is based off of who I am, here's the lie that Satan really is able to take advantage of. We're afraid of death. Because we don't know what comes after it. And so rather than talking about judgment, rather than talking about these things, you won't surely die. 
you'll just be reincarnated, recycled. It really makes sense how these things came to be so prevalent in the world. What doesn't make sense is why they are so prevalent among God's people. God's righteousness isn't an issue of you'll come back in a lesser state as a bug or an ant if you don't do a good job as, an ant, as a human. God's judgment is you will either know Christ and through His righteousness and His righteousness alone be accepted, or without it, you'll be condemned for the sin that you have inherited from this very series of lies that we're looking at tonight. There's an explanation provided. It's not just enough to question God's goodness or His truthfulness or His righteousness. But look at verse 5 again. Why is God doing this? It's to run away from His graciousness. Remember, God did not just tell Adam and Eve that you may eat of any fruit that is in the garden. He said you may eat freely. His grace abounded even before sin entered the world. He gave to His creation freely that they would have an abundance in everything that they need. Satan is able to manipulate this through questioning God's goodness, through questioning His truthfulness, through questioning His righteousness. He ultimately builds up to the point of asking the question, is God good to you? Oh, and here's the real hardship. Humans are really good at complaining. This has been a part of human nature for a long time. We are good at becoming so self-focused, we find something to complain about. You know what amazed me growing up? I, I wasn't popular, but I had a lot of friends from a lot of different backgrounds. You know, I kind of, I was able to fit in wherever I went. My most, my friends that had the most affluent parents complained just as much as my friends that had nothing. Just as much, if not more. Everyone finds something to complain about. The problem when we ask, is God good to you, is we can find something we think God could be doing a better job at. In asking this question, and all of this build-up, Satan is able to succeed. In verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She began to delight that it was a delight to her eyes, that it was aesthetically pleasing, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Think about what's actually tempting her here. Nourishment, so that's a physical need. That it was to be desired, so that's an internal or emotional need. And then finally, that would give her wisdom, so that's an intellectual need. Aren't these the things that we pursue most of all? My physical well-being, my emotional needs being fulfilled, and, and I want to be wicked smart. Just crazy smart. And blow everyone away all the time. 
Yeah, these are the things that we pursue. These are the things that we want. And it allures her. And we can, we can even see the temptation of the fruit now, not just being something that God had forbade, but now it's something that is enticing because there's something unknown. There's an, an element of, of going and getting that. And we've already fallen into the rabbit hole. We've already fallen into the lies of Satan and questioning God's goodness, his truthfulness, his righteousness, and his graciousness. After all of these things, this element that has been hanging and looming, I see that it's good for my physical well-being. I see that it's going to satisfy a desire inside of me. I, I see that it's going to illuminate wisdom for me. Wouldn't you eat the apple? By the way, it's not an apple. The Bible just says that it's a fruit. Whatever it is, would you eat the banana? The pear? Would you eat it? Everyone says, of course not. The first time I heard this Bible story, there was a felt board. I've been hearing this Bible story first from the felt board, then I graduated, you know, to the, the graphic images, and then I, um, then I, like the comic book Bible, and then and I've heard it preached a thousand million, 145 times exactly. I no longer have any room in my Bible to write any notes in the margin because I've heard this particular passage preached so many times. I would not have eaten the fruit. Just consider for a moment the different ways that I said God's truthfulness has been questioned in our world. Rationalism, subjectivism, pragmatism. Are you ever guilty of being pragmatic? Are you ever guilty of um, saying that that's their truth, but it's not my truth? Loved ones, you've already eaten the apple. Why? Because it's desirable. Because it satisfied something that you wanted. It's a very difficult thing to live in a position where we are always looking forward into eternity. I don't think that I'm the only person that struggles with this, and maybe I am, but... It's hard to live your life day to day and have your mind fixed on heaven. The Bible teaches that we should lay up our treasures in heaven, that we should, everything that we do throughout our day, we should be considering the implication in God's glory. Is what I'm doing glorifying Christ? Is the way that I'm driving glorifying God? Is it a good thing that we don't have church bumper stickers? Probably. Brother Wade and I used to joke because Brother Wade just lived down the road from Temple Baptist. I lived in, I had to drive quite a ways, but Brother Wade always went to come and go before he came, and came to church and always made him late. And then we had a morning meeting, so it annoyed me that he was always late. And so I asked him, why do you go to come and go when you know that you're running late? He said, well, because a lady pulled out in front of me and I was in a bad mood when I pulled out of my neighborhood and I didn't want her to see me pulling into the church. So I pulled in to come and go so that I could back out and then go to the church after she drove by. Brother Wade's, I mean, very immature, very respectable pastor. Brother Wade, why don't you just drive better? We're all guilty of this. It's difficult to keep our mind on glory. We're all guilty of eating the fruit 
I'm not talking about particular sins. I'm talking about valuing ourselves more than God. When Eve saw all of these things, there's a progression. Things speed up, and you can see it. I think you can actually see this in the English translations all right. So you can see in verse 6 that the woman saw that the tree was good. And so there's this progression of like if, then, and, then, and it follows. But then look what happens whenever sin actually begins to be enacted. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The verbs are just so close there. The things that people are doing, verbs are action words. It speeds up. This is the nature of sin that we consider it. Once we finally give birth to it, it's so difficult to get out of. Oh, it really does trap us. And if we're talking about lies, and I said this is really where we're heading or really what the goal is in our three-week study through Genesis... They pile up, and they're hard to get out of. As this picks up, verse 7 says that they both knew, their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now their shrewdness or their nakedness isn't just an issue of being exposed. We saw in chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and there was no problem. But their eyes were opened from, from that. And they were ashamed. They were ashamed from being discovered. I find the hardest part of looking at Genesis chapter 3 And I know I said we would stop at verse 7, but the hardest part for me is in verse 8. This is the nature of all sin, all deceit, all changes in the way that we think. The real issue of sin is it causes us to hide from the one who is there to provide When we look at verse 8, what we find is that Adam and Eve, after realizing that they were naked, heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Think about the seven letters that we finished studying this, this morning. Every single letter that Jesus writes calls the people to repentance. Why do we avoid repentance? Because it means admitting that we have something to repent of. Either a lack of forgiveness, either um, falling into the trap of the world, you know, whatever it is. It means that we have to admit it. And our human nature says that we would rather hide. We'd rather conceal it. Not just from our peers, not just from our friends, not just from our family members, but from God himself. We would rather pretend it's not there. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a secret and you knew that somebody else knew the secret, but you didn't want them to know the secret to begin with? And you were talking to that person. Was it easy or difficult to talk to that person? It was tough, wasn't it? 
your stomach's turning upside down as you're thinking about, okay, they're saying this, but they're actually thinking this, and everything else is going on. Life is much easier when we just don't lie. When we don't have secrets. How do we get there? <coughs> I'll ask... Ten minutes. It'll probably actually just five minutes. We'll probably dismiss a little bit early. Where's the rubber meet the road? How do we avoid not only falling and eating the fruit like Eve did? How do we avoid the temptation of of these original lies that question God's goodness, truthfulness, righteousness, and graciousness? Very simply, first of all, the way that we avoid this truth is by trusting that God is good. I can't give you a better explanation than that. God's good. He's good. He's always good. He always will be good. God's good. The second we begin to question that, everything falls apart. Because if we allow ourselves to consider for a moment that the benevolent God that has revealed Himself to humanity, preserved His Word throughout history, then we can question all sorts of things. God's good. We must believe that. Second, this is truth. I'm not talking in a a dogmatic way, all right? So I'll I'll poke some fun really fast since I have a little bit of time. I have heard, I better not say this. How much trouble will I get? No, I think I can say it. I've heard all my life that if you do not believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, a literal six-day creation that, you know, the whole Bible falls apart. I think I've even said that in the past. I don't really think that's all that true. I think we have to believe that the Bible is true for what it says. We have to believe that the Bible is true in its original context. We have to be people of the Word that are interested in actually studying it and understanding the implications of it. We have to be people that are faithful not to abuse the Bible for things that it was never intended to be used for. It's God's Word revealed to us. And if we're going to explore the actual meaning of the text, that means that we have to understand the bigger picture too. So we have to believe that God's good. And we have to believe that this is the truth. I think with those two things... We're pretty 